0: RLC founder Dave Evans spends time with partners, clients, and friends in the USA talking about all things business. If you are an inspiring business owner, an entrepreneur, a CEO, or a coach who wants real advice about what to do in business today and wants to hear frank conversations, then this is the show for you. Real-life consultivations, challenges, and ideas from all around the world. We hope you enjoy this episode of Consultivation. Welcome to Consultivation Season 2. It's been a while since I've been on the show. Delighted to be back. I'm here with two esteemed guests today on Season 2. And today we are talking about a super, super subject, the power of shared thinking. And in light of that, br- bring it back to the show, Mr Turnbull. Kevin, good to have you here, my friend.
1: Well, it's good to be here, Dave. Thanks, uh, thanks for the invite.
0: Uh, my pleasure. And this whole thing about shared thinking, uh, I had this idea, right, that the best way to talk about shared thinking is to talk to somebody who might work at a think tank. So we're not talking, Kevin, about a think tank, are we? in the spirit of Napoleon Hill and mastermind groups and like-minded people being in a room either virtually or in the same place. We're talking about a real think tank, would you agree?
1: I, I, I would. Um, I'm fascinated by the whole idea of um, uh, shared thinking because in a way, it's kind of at the heart of what we do as coaches. Um, yeah. You know, we're we are, we're often sounding boards. We uh, we initiate discussions and uh, argument, maybe. Um, and that's all about getting shared thinking yeah, and often shared consensus. Um, I think, uh, sorry, Kevin, I think Debbie
0: wants to be part of the show. So, um, And it's really great that she's calling in already. I mean, it's fabulous. So she's Debbie trying to get, let's be real people, hold on. Hi Debbie, I'm live on conservation. Uh, see you later. Bye. Uh, you talk about shared thinking. There's apparently potatoes and onion in the auger, so uh, I mean that is a an, that is an issue, Lisa, isn't it? And we'll introduce you properly in a second of international meritocracy. Uh, yeah, I will dash there in a moment. Now, uh, Food security
2: is a very important thing.
0: Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a disaster. So, Lisa, uh, glad to have you with us. Um, talk us through this rather wonderful job title that you have.
2: Yeah. Um, Well, uh, my job title is uh, Managing Director of Professional Services at Chatham House, which is also known as the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Uh, We're quite famous for having a rule. Uh, Many people say the Chatham House rules, which they simply mean as a byword for a a private conversation. But actually, there is only one rule at Chatham House, um, and that is the rule that we all know and love.
0: Oh, I love it, and we should we should explore that a little bit. Kevin, had you heard of the Chatham House
1: Rule before? I, I have, yeah. You see it quite frequently, and and I've actually been to Chatham House on a number of occasions. Quite a few years back, I think, when I was on director of Inchcape, um, I, I went to some events there. And um, and you know, it's got to be said that Chatham House stick by the Chatham House rules. You know, it's kind of what they live by, and uh, and and this the consistency is fantastic.
0: And do you think, Lisa, it's something that organisations can learn from when they're making major strategic decisions?
2: In terms of using the Chatham House rule? Yeah. um, Well, the purpose of the Chatham House rule was really to encourage open um, and confidential dialogue. So the purpose of being able to share things um, and not reveal um, who, you know, not attribute the the ownership of, of that particular piece of information. So I think there are areas where it's in, there are issues which are so difficult and so challenging that you might well need to have a, 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 a position of safety where you can have those kind of frank and open dialogues. I wouldn't generally use it in a strategic context for, you know, for uh, you know, ELTs or senior leadership teams. I think you should be able to have you know, open dialogue and you know, on the table kind of dialogue. With um, your, your co workers and, and those on the executive leadership team. But I think there's definitely elements of that which other organizations pull into play. So, you know, anonymous surveys, for example, yep. and various other bits and pieces. So, I think there, is, there, there are mechanisms that businesses definitely use and um, to their advantage uh, to create those positions um, and areas of open dialogue within organizations. So, yeah, I think it does have a really important place.
0: It's, it's, and it's good to clarify for anyone who hasn't heard of it. And I love this whole, whole idea of having a safe place where people can genuinely talk about, you know, what they know is going on, but without necessarily having to break confidences or or in so many cases in large companies, swear allegiance to one person or another in the act of sharing information, as yeah. opposed to leaning in and brutally accepting there's a problem to be confronted. So... Yeah. What's your What's your view on on shared thinking? Uh, how important would you say, Lisa, it is?
2: I think it's vital in an organisation that you know, like Chatham House, which is trying to help you know governments, societies, uh, the you know the, the population at large, or the informed public, as, as we sometimes refer to them, to try and understand some of the most complex problems that are facing the, the world today, either be those topical or regional issues. And it, it, we just couldn't do it without it. It, it. It's as simple as that. And very often you're dealing with, if you're dealing with topics, for example, let's take climate change, for example, you also need a regional aspect of that. And you need to understand both sides of those coins. So, you know, work in our, um, our environmental program, they would be, you know, trying to work out, okay, how do we make the sustainable development goals a reality? What are the kind of mechanisms and policies that organize it, what the governments need to put into place in order to be able to achieve that? And then our Asia program will be going, okay, that's fine, but how do China think about that? How how do we get China on board with those kinds of things? And you know, bearing in mind their economy and bearing in mind uh, their their regional uh, goals uh, as a as a country. So you, you kind of have to do a lot of that shared multidisciplinary thinking mm. in order to be able to do that. And I think one of the more, you know, the interesting thing about seeing Chatham House, and we just celebrated our, uh, our centenary, which one of the interesting things I think has right. developed over time is the changing role of think tanks in society. So before, you know, 60, 70 years ago, you know, the image of a think tank was, you know, Predominantly white gentlemen in tweed, smoking a pipe, pontificating, thinking, researching, and then just sort of putting that you know putting it out into a into a library that nobody will ever read. And the the, the great power of of think tanks, I think, in the twenty first century is really about multidisciplinary thinking and trying to make the very complex manageable. So I think of what we're trying to do, certainly in our second centenary. It's to make those the biggest and the, the biggest and most wicked problems of our day more manageable. We can't make them simple. I think that's a fallacy that we tell ourselves. Um, but I do think we can make them manageable and create pragmatic solutions for governments and actors and societies in order to be able to help solve some of these problems.
0: David, short saying, "Wow, it's a great reframe or reuse, isn't it, of a historic." set of tools. Mr. Turbo, what do you think? I was going to put a banner up.
1: Uh, well, I, I think the whole kind of, you know, think tank and Chatham Houses are, uh, it's a mechanism to, you know, to think the unthinkable, you know, to debate the undebatable. Um, and it, with your analogy there, Lisa, about climate change, it wasn't really that long ago where people were saying, well, there's no point in debating it because it's too expensive or it's not happening or it's a myth yeah. or whatever oh. it is. But, you know, um, the Think Tank um, uh, uh, format allows you to debate that undebatable and saying, well, yes, it may be too expensive, but let's talk about how expensive it could be. Um, let's take it into bite-sized chunks. Let's, um, you know, eat the elephant one bite at a time. That sort of stuff. Um, and I think that's uh, that's terrific. Terrific.
0: I yeah. do. And, and also, you've, I think you've explained a really complex example that you were talking about, about the power of multi disciplinary thinking at RLC we're always talking about perceptual positioning and at least considering three or three or more uh, perspectives but actually we're talking much deeper than that aren't we we're talking about whatever if there's if there's 11 perspectives think about them all if there's 27 think about them all it's no longer starting with three plus it's as many as is required is what I get a sense of
2: Absolutely. And so an example of, of that is, so I was, I was talking to a researcher today and um, our, our director at uh, the Middle East and North Africa program, Nina Khatib, and we were talking about that, we were, I was explaining that I was coming on this podcast and, you know, I've been asked this interesting question. So, you know, how do I, how to put some, some flavour to it? And she gave me a really good example. So one of the things that we do at Chatham House is, really break down some of the the really complicated problems that potentially um, governments, societies, actors, you know uh, people who are trying to change the world are thinking about it in one particular dimension and they're thinking about it quite simplistically or trying to think about it quite simplistically or have a particular fairly narrow framework. So an example would be um, what we call um, conflict supply chain and what we did in, in the Middle East and North Africa program is we thought about um, and I say we've with great pride. I had absolutely nothing to do with it, <laughs> um, yeah. but uh, they they thought about um, the the conflict economy and how that interlinks with different regions. So it's not just about you know um, Iraq. It's not just about Libya. It's not just about Yemen. Uh, it's not just about Syria. How do the what are the what are the commonalities uh, of war? And let's think about it as an, an economic transaction. And whether we like it or not, you know, some of the governments, some of the actors and groups, they're all transacting uh, with each other, you know, very often for illicit business, but not always. And, the, you know, so if you look at it as a supply chain, then you can actually take a more complicated framework and start to use those as opportunities to think about solving the conflict in a different way, rather than we've got conflict in Libya, we've got conflict in Yemen, we've got conflict in Syria, we've got conflict in Iraq by looking at the conflict as a whole and the commonalities around that conflict, you then can have regional policies that you can layer on top to, in order to be able to affect change much more effectively than, than just purely there are good guys and bad guys in Libya, there are good guys and bad guys in Yemen, etc., etc. So that's the kind of breaking down and, and pragmatic solution finding that we're trying to do for Um, governments um, and and organizations that are are trying to solve some of these really challenging problems.
0: I I love it. That's a really great example to anybody listening about how to really step to one side and take a look at um, whatever your current problem is from a completely different view. A commercial model that's quite similar is, um, you know, it's, I always was amazed by the brand Warburtons when to control the bread market, they invested in the side view that you just talked about and traced everything back to the point the seed is planted. They started to purchase assets involved in the process to control, not necessarily control market conditions, but to control their risk in them. Now, whilst that's a very simple analogy compared to the complex one that you shared, Lisa, Mm -hmm. it's a good example of the business thinking, in international affairs to solve a completely different problem by pulling pieces out and putting them back in. And I, I absolutely love that example because most of us will never get to understand what a conflict economy is, um, yeah. which we, I'm sure we're all really grateful for, right? Um, yeah. But it, but it, but like you've highlighted, it is in play, isn't it?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think some of the, in addition to that, I would say that part of being a think tank is also being a great communicator. You have to be able to write effectively, you have to be able to um, explain those complex ideas in in different ways and we're we're doing that and then bringing in different voices as well. Um, So we do that with, we've got a project called Common Futures which is bringing young people together thinking about um, across multiple continents to think about some of these political problems that people, young people particularly generally don't feel that they have any kind of voice in, don't feel that they have any um, mechanism for for discussing those, um, or trying to be part of the solution of those. So Common Futures is really bringing those uh, across a digital platform to bring those uh, young people together to to say actually they do have something to say they are thinking about these in in quite a political quite a sophisticated way and how can we link those uh to to the research at chatham house or the the thinking at chatham house in order to be able to come up with something you know quite interesting that we can then feed back to to governments and um and other organizations
0: i i, mean, I would love this conversation uh, kevin just to just to just capture some of those things lisa just yeah. shared alone Right. About being a good communicator, a good writer, a good voice, using a system, using platforms and actually thinking about the next generation and every generation, wherever they are, as in they all have a right to learn the lessons that the think tank is is getting breakthroughs in or small progress. in. I, I think that's, a, you know, it's almost a, a really noble cause of using thinking for an absolute maximum effect. So, so Lisa, how did you end up with Chatham?
2: Oh well. Um, so full confession: I had only ever heard of the Chatham House Rule.
0: Okay.
2: And 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 I made the same faux pas that absolutely everybody does and said the Chatham House Rules. And in, a job came up that I saw, and I said Chatham House. Oh, I've heard of that. What, it, what is that? And I looked, and on the front of the the website, and it, it's it's a little bit further down, but it's still there today. Was uh, about essentially about changing the world, um, okay. and uh, I'm going to we'll be tested uh, for our... Um...
0: That's, uh, we'll come back to Lisa in a second. Kevin, what do you think of the conversation so far?
1: Well, I, I, I love that whole um, conflict economy uh, discussion, because it, it makes you think more. It does. You it know, does. just using that as a key to open the door... You start to think you start to think about what are the motivation behind all of these players and actors in in these conflict uh, worlds you know from the from the from the great unwashed population to the great unwashed leaders sort, sort yeah. of thing um so it makes you think and delve and probe um and you know to get under the skin of it all and I think that sort of analysis um you know which is kind of completely prompted by what think tanks like Chatham House do is fantastic um, and I love what Lisa was saying there. she saw, you know, she saw a job description about changing the world. And hey, you know, we're looking for world changes. I would, I would volunteer for that.
0: It's, it's an interesting point, isn't it? About sometimes when we're recruiting, and Lisa will be back with us in two seconds. Um, um, I've got her here in the waiting room. Uh, sometimes we'll be advertising for something, won't we? And all and, companies or clients of ours will. And they're advertising in such a normal way. You just are in the soup. You can't be identified, but that whole thing about, like you said, changing the world got our attention, and uh, seamlessly we will come right I'm back so to that. Fault, Lisa.
2: I'm so sorry about that. The, the modern technology, you know, the the joys of modern technology. Um, I don't know where you, uh, I don't know where you lost me or where I I got lost. So pull me back in. Sorry about that.
0: Uh, Kevin was uh, reciting back beautifully. Uh, the power of changing the world got your attention in a job ad.
2: Yes, that's right. So, you know, um, creating a sustainable, prosperous, um, uh, and just world—I was like sold. That's it. Uh, I'm, I'm coming. I'm here. So, I applied, um, and I got the, I got the job. When I, the point at which I applied, it was a HR director position, and it was the first time that Chatham House had really had a full-time professional HR. Uh, director, so uh, it was really about building the function um, from from the ground up uh, initially. Yeah. And once I'd done that for about sort of three years, the COO retired, and uh, back end of 2019, and I took over then as managing. We we did a sort of a restructure, and I took over then as part of of um, part of that restructure and took on board um, IT. I'd already got hr but i took on the library facilities and then subsequently digital transformation but from my part the the purpose of or the raison d'etre of professional services is really about creating a great environment in which the the staff can actually live their best i would say live their best life that sounds really millennial, doesn't it but but really thrive and and do their best work that's what we're trying to achieve
0: i love it uh, and it really connects well with uh, our brand about, you know, helping businesses become best version businesses and and yeah. therefore applying loads of, of positive assumptions. That includes every part of it. And we all know that people are one of the critical pieces of that. Yeah, I, I find that it's really interesting because the amount of human beings talk about multidisciplinary humans who all know they should be better on the inside, uh, wrestle with it because mm-hmm. it's natural and normal. And yet organizations are often slow to realize if you can enable that battle to be a winning battle, the rest takes care of itself to say Kevin. And yet and if I only like learned that years ago, you know, when mm-hmm. I was in my corporate days, it would have been a much more successful time. But I like that, an environment where uh, people can be their best, it's a really simple message. and. How have you managed and navigated, you know, the la- I mean, we've talked about the pandemic so many different ways over the last two years. Well sure, but, yeah. Uh, but how, how did Chatham House go f- get through that?
2: Um, do you know what? I think, I mean, we've heard from our, sort of our external stakeholders, I think the vast majority of organisations essentially took to it like a duck to water. You know, we did, um, uh, we, did, we ba- basically turned things around. We were a very in-person business. Um, up to up to that point so yes we had researchers that worked you know could work in the field and can work offline and, and, and work from home and again I think as a lot of businesses we were just used to coming in every single day whether we really needed to or not we never really questioned it we just came to the building etc etc but we did do an awful lot of in-person business uh, convening and meetings etc. And to be fair to to both my team and to the credit of everybody at Chatham House, we flipped that around in four days. You know, we were running. I think we ran our first conference within four days of lockdown, and you know, we had to learn and and do it and all at the same time and at top speed. So it was really good uh, in the sense that we got a lot of flexibility. I think we all, um, uh, you know worked really hard over that period of time but it was an exhausting period of time there's no two ways about it you know lockdowns uh, etc i'm sure other organizations that you've spoken to everybody was in wildly different circumstances we had some members of staff that had come over from another country you know were in temporary accommodation were having to move in the middle of temporary you know having temporary accommodation poor setups younger people cramped into you know, small, uh, you know, apartments, you know, can't leave their room. And, uh, you know, it was just really, when you really got into the detail of it, you know, there were different, the different challenges and struggles that we had. I think from an organizational perspective, as we're coming out, one of the things that we're thinking about is, um, what we've proven is that we can do the vast majority um, online, but what we can't do um, as effectively is things like convening. There are just, we can do online convening to a certain point and I think I think the whole world is working out, okay, what online convening is really, really good and what online convening is, you know, okay, but not great. So uh, from my personal perspective, and I'm just speaking from, from my side rather than the sort of more Chatham House side, I find that anything that's networking related online is just like, it's it's like a bad day. It just doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. Um, you just don't get the, you know, another Zoom chat room and stuff. I, you know, I can do it, but it's it's just not as good as being in a room with somebody um, and seeing, you know, just seeing the feel of the room, seeing who's there, seeing who's talking, etc. But I find learning um, conferences and and learning meetings they're absolutely fine uh, to do online. And actually, sometimes the dialogue that you get. Online, because more people feel that they are capable of asking questions, they don't have to stand up in the middle of an audience. It can be quite. Re- it can be really. Quite interesting that way, and we've certainly yeah. found that actually with events that we've run with younger people, or when we've been doing outreach events, we do summer school, etc. Some of the questions that like 16 year olds were asking our summer school I was like, "Oh my god, I
0: would have literally have never thought of that." I, I, yeah. How, how yeah. are these?
2: How are these? How are these children asking these intelligent questions? Are they,
0: aren't they uh, generally so well prepared these days? It's like what? Oh, it's, um, it's, it's extraordinary.
2: I was I was I was looking at some of these questions. I, I I don't. I'm not even sure I know what that means. I'm so sorry. Um, but no, it was it was really great to see their interaction. So prepared and stuff. So I think what we are really coming to, it, as opposed, to I, what I hope is a creation of. I don't think we're going. I don't think there's going to be a normal. I think normal is what you label things later. But in this transition phase. I think we're coming to value what is it that we really need to do in person, and it's probably yeah. the more difficult meetings, the more difficult diplomacy, some of those um, Chatham House Rule conversations. I think people are missing those, and and bringing people together in a room and, and really being able to see the whole person, the whole face, the, whole, the the body language, and be able to interact in that way. I think that's really important. And and then the, the, you know this hybrid way of working how we're we going to blend the the two things together so that everybody gets a good experience and you know there's a lot of worry about oh well will it all be about going in person and those people who go in person will they'll inevitably climb up the ladder quicker than those who won't and etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think that's really hard to say I think that's going to require really good conscious uh, leadership and management from uh, from from all parties, really, but that's what that's the thing that I'm thinking about is how do we do conscious leadership uh, and management so that we don't have this inequity of a digi- those staff who need to work predominantly digitally uh, or online and those staff who choose to come in in person, um, etc. There shouldn't be a uh, there shouldn't be a huge disparity uh, amongst those two. We should be able to blend those.
0: Isn't it alarming? As brilliant as that question is, isn't it alarming to think about unconscious leaders, <laughs> leaders who are sleeping at the wheel, Kevin? Eh?
1: Um, well, I think we've met a few, a few of those in our time. Yeah.
0: That, that would be true. Uh, but I love, I love that whole thing. And, and I, I, I know you said conscious, but it's almost as though you meant a blend of conscious and conscience, where the, people are just in tune, aren't they? They're in tune with this. Because I agree with you, it's too easy to think about some of the cliches of two years ago, which have been around for decades. <laughs> people being measured successfully by the fact they're in early, the fact they leave late, mm. you know, and therefore no one's really asking: Was their work effective? You know, do they yeah. really need to work all those hours? And and there's there's one thing that sticks with me even at this stage is it's a simple thing that. If people who work for you have discovered that their life is valuable their time away from work is valuable uh whether it's forced uh or not and they want to keep a part of that they'll stay with your organization if you can blend it well and give them the mm. chance to enjoy their life you know rather than this movie that we all subscribe to we joked before we went live today about being in the matrix and, um, mm-hmm. and where. You work however many years, you get to retirement, your body starts to let you down a little bit, hopefully not much, but it can be disastrous. And then before you know it, the time of your life you were looking forward to is over. You know, I think we do live in an age where you can have your cake and eat it within reason. And if employers can work that out, Lisa, they can transform, can't they, their whole workforce appetite and do things just in a different way. So I want to talk to you about you for a little bit. And this is where. You I know, open up any question Kevin, want to ask you too. But I'd like to know what lights you up outside a jam house so in your own time. What is it that you know is <laughs> your imagination?
2: Oh, um, well, loads of things really. You asked me that question the other day, and I, I gave a really sort of monotonous answer that I thought was appropriate, which is something and some stuff around enjoying leadership, which is not that not that that's not true. I suppose what lights me up is. Having a laugh with friends, um, gardening—that sounds really boring, doesn't it? I'm just—I'm about to go down a rabbit hole of sounding terribly boring, but the—you know—just the beauty of nature and, and Wait, things one like that. Are we,
0: are we not? Are we not making a huge assumption together here <laughs> um, that about those things? Are, I mean, I, I must tell you, living in Easter Sheehan Farm, um, we have a tree outside. We loads of trees outside, but there's a tree right next to one of the conservatories, and. It's the most alive tree I've ever seen in my life. There's about 60 to 70 birds all day long feeding off it. And, yeah. and, I, and I think, I hope this is true, Kevin, because you're so young you might be able to tell me, right? It's, <laughs> um, I, think, I think it's <laughs> true. You do appreciate form of, forms of life, whatever they are, the older you get. Um, so, so maybe it's as boring as you were implying.
2: I think that's I think that's true and I, but, so I suppose it, to be specific nature lights me up I can you know I just I don't know if it's ever happened to you but I am um, my father passed away last year and he was in Dorney um, and it was the first time I'd ever been to Dorney and you might know that neck of the woods Dave but it's the most staggering it was when you see scenery he always used to say uh, it's breathtaking up here and I've never really seen scenery that's breathtaking. You know, I've seen nice and beaches are nice and all the rest of it. But it's not until you walk amongst, you know, trees that are a hundred feet in the air and you know, or you can see out onto the landscape a, a beautiful loch. Um, and it was truly breathtaking. It was truly magical. And I understood for the first time what he meant by it's breathtaking. So I think. What I've learned is that what lights me up is actually nature, to be perfectly honest.
0: And I, I really love your description and I, I can concur that there are parts of Scotland, and that we live in a big chunk of it that's like this, where often my eyes don't know what to do. Mm. You're, you're going along and you're like, "Majorca was very similar with the microclimates, where mm. You're going into a microclimate, you've never seen it before, and you're going, what is this? Your you're yeah. right, processing so much information, um, but it's just nice. You end up with a, like, a mild face ache. Because
2: there's just beautiful <laughs> yeah.
0: um, And it is, I think it's very under undervalued in Britain. And it's, uh, yeah, there are parts of England that are similar. But we have it up here on steroids. Um, yeah. Some extraordinary places. Uh, primarily because they're unspoilt. There aren't many people living in them. They're owned by big estates. They're looked after. Um, and they're just sensational. I, I love that. Let's, uh, Kev, do you have a question for Lisa?
1: Well, I, I, can I just build on what you're saying there? Because I think there's a really positive mental health aspect to all of that scenery, sunshine and nature. Um, I went, um, I, I deliberately um, uh, did a little um, kind of own time um, RVing earlier this year and I went to the national parks in Utah Nice, and honestly nice. every day there was a kind of oh my god, god moment yeah. oh, and yeah. it was just yeah. staggering and uh you know i, I felt a little bit burned out you know before i was going but i thought i'm gonna do this because i really want to go and i want to i want to see these beautiful sights in the arches and uh and i uh, the grand canyon at the end of it and it was just staggering um and you just felt that you were you were kind of coming alive because you were You were seeing the world and nature in a different sort of a way. And of course, it's so epic, you know, such a grand scale of it all um, that you couldn't help but think that sky is huge. You know, those rock formations are unbelievably complicated. And it was amazing. It was amazing.
0: We had Dr. Lee Valence on the show a few episodes ago, uh, Lisa, who runs, is a CEO of a hospice. She, she grew up wanting to be a CEO of a hospice. I mean, that tells you all you need to know about how mad mm. she is. But she's a, she's a change maker. She talked about to our team once about the power of a outdoor area, mm. out, views out of a window for the people that stay with her, for whatever condition they're in, that they get to see nature. Somewhat yes. demonstrable effect it has on people towards the end. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's a huge thing, isn't it, Kevin? It's it's way undervalued. Um, well, not, it's-
1: not, sorry, not but not only that, Dave. If you, if you you know if you take the kind of you know the norm of uh, you know being in a being in a corporate world yeah. in the 60s, seventies, yeah. and eighties. You know the, the office space was terrible. You know it, many people couldn't see out of windows. It was yeah. enclosed. It was corridor like. Right, yeah. um, it okay. was it was just awful, um, you I know. I re- I, I joined Ford Water Company as my first job after university, and um, you know the air conditioning didn't work that well, so people were yeah. getting sick. Yeah. And you know, I mean, if you think you look back in you think that can't possibly have happened, but it did. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm, no,
1: not sure, and I'm not sure things have changed hugely since then. That's true.
2: It was really funny. So I am I'm I'm well known for being a bit of plantaholic at work, and a few. Before the lockdown, the the whole wall behind me would have been covered in plants. Um, But I had to take more home before they died and during the pandemic. But um, one of the key things, there are a few very small things that I I, I did um, and not really deliberately through sort of requests from staff. They knew I liked plants. And so they said, Lisa, will you get some plants for the office? Can we can we have proper plants for the office? I was like yeah that's absolutely fine of course no problem so we did and uh, they they, they love them they absolutely love the plants and and now I'm I'm the plant lady that they ask for and like well, can we have a plant here can we have a plant there yes of course yeah no problem but I am really wondering what uh, and it's one of the things that I'm thinking about next is what what spaces are we going to need when um, people want to return to the office because you're quite right Kevin no one's going to want to be in one of those soulless offices where you've got a few little pictures, you know, sad, dusty pictures um, of your loved ones pinned to a bit of a a sort of a cork board in front of you and, you know, a sea of empty desks. No one's going to want that. So what spaces are going to be required for the kind of work that we're going to want to do in person, in the office? And right. I think we really need to rethink and redesign our spaces because I, yeah. I don't think that, to your point, they weren't made for the human spirit. They weren't made for no. humans to thrive.
0: No. And you know, we were at a conference recently, uh, very recently actually, and, and uh, uh, the horticulturist guy who's on, um, I don't watch it, but Good Morning Britain, and whatever it's called these days. And uh, he's also on a show with a few other people he wanted to names drop, but he's been around for a decade that works with Charlie in the garden, and all that kind of stuff. He's just put a book out and he did a demonstration for a talk for about 50 minutes about the effect of horticulture in the office. Mm. And, and initially, you, you hear a subject like that Kevin, right? Oh, sorry, you might. I did. Going, all right. Not because I'm a skeptic, because I, I wrongly associated plants to it. Go. you know, really? You know. Mm. But he was brilliant. And by the end of his talk, I'm going, Debbie, you're right. Let's get more plants. You know. Yeah. And when our when our things were fixing up here are done, I want to see loads of plants around the place because I now understand the massive effect they have on
1: someone's health and well-being. Yeah. Massive. Yes, right. Nature is the new cubicle.
2: Nature yeah. is the new cubicle. I love yeah. that. That's excellent. We're gonna steal that one.
0: It's
1: steal it. It's given freely.
0: <laughs> Now uh, We also have here uh, MD of Professional Services at Chatham House, Royal Institute of International Affairs, and Plant Pro. I think um,
2: the Pro is probably a little bit uh, but I, I was
0: upgrading it. I, I didn't want to be gendered, you know, specific because it'd be unfair. Plant Lady. That's fair. I mean, well, I don't mind. I don't professional. Mind. I think is you know people are asking you for advice. So Lisa, just- another question. This conversation's flying by. What are you most proud of?
2: Oh well, we—I uh, think we sort of talked about this before. But in my um, my professional life here at Chatham House, I think one of the things that I've been really—I've um, been really pleased by—is our approach to EDI. Mm-hmm. And when I first got here, I'm gonna be completely honest, there was very little uh, equality and diversity work going on. It's not that people didn't care about it. It's not that staff didn't care about it. It was just, there was no forum for it. That was it. Um, we went from that to um, uh, working with um, the inclusive top 50 um and we became a member um, of the inclusive top 50 the first year we entered um and we've climbed the ranks ever since we've um been ranked three years in a row uh, we're now <laughs> EDI, not for we are now um we're sure now number 38 I don't want
0: to people, Lisa. So, fair I'm, enough I'm, fair like, enough uh, uh, that's what it is but, uh, go ahead
2: so we're now um uh, we're now number 38 and we're working on it it's a work in progress and um, since last year we've also um, created a, an equality, diversity and inclusion board, a staff board, which will report into um, our uh, board of trustees. And we're doing really important work and, and really great work around um, our equality, diversity and inclusion. You know, being Taking a really hard look at ourselves, being proud of what we've achieved so far, but not resting on that and seeing its tick box exercises and and saying right great you know and um, you know job done so i'm i'm really proud of being part of that you know just that nudge that little nudge initially from starting you know work on uh, equality um uh, diversity and inclusion and getting us the, you know getting us into visibility like you know the inclusive top 50 you know a great organisation to to work with and partner with um, and then you know from there you know, catalyzing again and then working to create the, to to just provide the environment where uh, an equality and diversity and inclusion board, staff board and can be created. And so I attend and it's just really um, heartwarming to see um, the work that we're doing on that and the the work that the staff are are doing on that. So that's one of the the proudest moments taking an organisation that was kind of, you know, it just was nowhere to be seen through to, being very present and being very core cool to what we do. That's
0: brilliant, Kevin. Do you have a final question for Lisa today, and I'll, I'll ask him one more in a moment.
1: I'd, I'd, you know, I don't. I don't think I do. I and that, that, that EDI stuff, I think, is great. Um, yeah, I, I do. I, I do think a lot of people look at it with a kind of, mm, really, um, are we doing more of more of this stuff? You know, I've already got EDI, and they clearly haven't. Um, mm. So you, it, it, it's, it's a thing that needs repeated a lot. Yeah. Um, and I like your whole idea of, in fact, you're the only person that's ever guested, Lisa. this that's enabled me to get a nudge theory um, on the table in one of these in one of these podcasts.
2: I love nudge theory, uh,
1: and I, and I think nudging is a great thing. You know, the whole idea that it's 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 completely deliberate that your recycling bin is bigger than your waste bin, um, yeah. because that's cool. a nudge to say that you should be recycling more, and uh, yeah. and the more you can do that for all sorts of issues. Um, it does, no. it can make a lasting impression, uh, so thank you for allowing me to bring in Nudge the you. No, you're, you're welcome,
2: you're welcome, and it, it, it's a great thing, and it, it's actually, I, in my in my view, I think it's one of the key ways in which you can really improve inclusion. People think it's just so big, or it's a quality university, it's, you know, it, it can get muddled very, very quickly, but actually those small individual decisions have a really big effect over time and, and just little tiny behavioural changes will will really help improve that. So, yeah, I completely agree with you.
0: I mean, that was very uh, very good and very stealth. I did warn you about his oorah earlier mm. on. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> you're still using it right here at the end <laughs> of the episode. And, and for anybody listening and watching today, we are running over, but this conversation has been far too rich to pause or hold back from. Uh, Lisa, is there there a lasting message or imprint you want anyone listening to remember from our chat today that, you know, that really connects with you, that you want to say, you know, no, just just do this. Is is there something you'd like to leave as a final thought?
2: Oh, uh, now you've really put me on the spot. I suppose one of the things that I would say is we should we should just I think we need to accept that the problems with some of the problems organizational problems that we face you know the the right person in the right role and and then you know step back and relax and all the rest of it that's great and that's actually right the problem is we've been sold that that is simple and it's not simple it takes effort it takes work it takes conscious leadership so stop looking for the simple stop looking for the quick fix stop looking for good guys and bad guys and thinking that these problems are very easy to solve because i think we've been sold that in our political lives and uh, you know some of the political problems you know there's good guys there's bad guys lock them up you know build a wall you know take back control these things are not simple they're really complex problems and maybe by taking a different look and making a conscious effort and conscious leadership we can actually find a way to solve and overcome some of these problems but don't be lulled by simple take complex and manage it
0: i i love that take complex and manage it i mean wow what, what what a way to finish lisa and i've done my very best to to take bits of what you said and if you're listening to this i don't know what the zero is about but um it's, it's because it's a plant symbol apparently just <laughs> quickly came up on my on my support panel um but i i love that idea that let's accept we've been sold a bit of a an untrue story, but only a true principle, and that the real effort comes into being prepared to pick apart a complex process, go right back to the beginning, use multidisciplinary thinking. Take that conflict economy example from earlier in the episode, and really think about your business through that lens, Mm because I think it's a tremendous uh, tip alone on its own merits today. Uh, clearly, the dog was highly motivated. You see Monty leave, then it's <laughs> getting a bit heavy, Dave. He's back. So, uh, Lisa, we want to both thank you for your time and
2: pleasure
0: being, being prepared to you know spend time with us. I know what we haven't haven't spoken about how you met RLC. And we'll maybe do that another time. And Debbie and I are working together with your fellows and stuff we've done now together. Yes,
2: that's the, right. Yeah, some of the years ago
0: great. brilliant moments. But um, this has been consultation where professionals from around the world, consultants, advisors, plant pros even, get together <laughs> to talk about issues in business today. And we've been with Kevin Turbo. Kevin, thank you for your
1: time. It's been a pleasure, Dave. That was a fascinating conversation um, about complex issues not made easy.
0: Thanks. So we have been talking with uh, Managing Director of Professional Services at Chatham House Royal Institute of International Affairs and Plant Pro. Please <laughs> daily. thank you
2: so much for having me i really appreciate it it's been it's been great to chat to you guys it's been really good thank you so much
0: and wherever you are have a think about how you whatever you're doing can help change the world creating it a just and sustainable future and you if you heard that last section about edi place it at the top of your list you heard about chatham house they appointed an equality and diversity and inclusion board reporting to the trustees of the organization What a bold, simple idea. And let's all remember from Kevin's Oura moment, using the nudge theory, tiny nudges of moving something along and continuing your commitment to education of critical issues in business today is the only way to solve long-term complex problems. This has been Consultivation. I've been Dave Evans. See you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to Consultivations brought to you by RLC Global, helping you become a best version business. If you want any help from the conversations in the show today, please reach out to info at rlc-global.com and one of our team would be delighted to talk with you. Go to rlcglobal.group for more information and free content designed to help you.